Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. Brought to you exclusively from the No Pants Podcast Network. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I think this may be the least amount of clothing we've ever worn while podcasting. I don't think they need to know that we're literally the No Pants Podcast <laughs> Network. Where do you think it came from? I was hoping to leave that to their imaginations. That was not a matter of creativity. That was simply saying what I saw <laughs> and saying it out loud. That's it. I mean, it's what I got. Are you ready to talk about the way of kings? I am. Who are you? I'm Liz. I'm the Duchess. I'm Chad. I'm the Duke. We're talking about the way of kings tonight by Brandon Sanderson. Tonight, our book club is covering chapters 23 through 27, and we are in episode 63. That's if right. that matters to you. It, it matters to me. It matters to me, Liz. Well, welcome to episode 63 then, Chad. I feel welcomed. Next up, episode 64, we'll be covering chapter 28 in The Way of Kings, as well as interludes 4, 5, and 6. Interlude heavy. That's right. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy out there? Outstanding. So the spoiler policy is this. Liz has read these books. Liz has read everything in the Cosmere, some of it two or three times. I have never read, read any of it. So I am a Cosmere virgin. Cosmergen. As it were. So we will not spoil anything past chapter 27 of The Way of Kings or any of the other books. We may talk about Cosmere-related things as long as those things don't spoil any of the major plot points. Correct. Let's get this show on the road. Let's do, but first let's tell our listeners that they should hang around. They should. We're going to talk about the actual book like we promised. But at the end of this podcast, we'll be doing a special game that was inspired by a couple of our listeners on our Facebook page. Absolutely. Should be a good time. But let's get into the section. What did you think overall, chapters 23 through 27? I enjoyed it. I feel like it's starting to go somewhere. I'm excited to read chapter 28 because I can, you know, feel us getting to the end of a part and I feel like something big is going to happen in chapter 28. I am getting a little bit of a lethe fatigue. Right. Like, okay, these guys are stupid. Let's get on with it. But I'm still enjoying it. Yes, I feel like the Dalinar plot line is a slow build. Yeah. It's kind of a lot of reinforcing the same things we know about the Alethi. They're mostly dicks. Dalinar's different. He gets a hard time about it. He struggles. He's back. He's forth. That's a slow build. Yeah, there, there just isn't an awful lot of... We're peeling back the onion, but all we find underneath of it is more and more layers of onion. And I'm like, Jesus, there's a whole goddamn room of onions here, I hope. You know, one of these will be an apple. You do know that at the center of the onion is is just more onion. That's a shitty analogy. <laughs> kind of is. I never quite understood that. I mean, I keep waiting. It's not like I've ever peeled an onion and found like a lump of gold in the middle. Yeah. I mean, I'd settle for an orange. 
Just something different. Golden you know? ticket. Yeah, I'll Nothing. take it. No. I'll take it. Just onion. Apparently. Some more stinky onions. But we are way, <laughs> we're already way off track. Are you ready to talk about chapter 23? Let's get into chapter 23. It's called Many Uses. And in this chapter, Kaladin enlists Rock and Teft to enact part of his plan to help the bridgemen. With Sill's help, they are able to harvest knobweed. There will be no knobweed jokes. Let me get through my synopsis. None. They're able to harvest knobweed, a plant with powerful antiseptic properties. While, While milking the knobweed... Rock shares his backstory. Whoo, sorry, that was hard to get through. <laughs> you wrote that. I know. You're the one who wrote it. I know. <laughs> but on our Facebook page, one of our listeners made a knobweed joke, and now I can't read the word aloud. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's what I call our kids, you know. No, it's not. Yeah. Knobweed. It's true. That's yeah. a fu- It's funnier the more you say it. Yeah. Don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> Until you've had to say knobweed three times in a paragraph. Listen, I planted my life spread in your garden. We grew a patch of knobweed. <laughs> That's what happens when you spill your seed on the ground. So let's, what, did, what did you think of this chapter? <laughs> so listen, I, I don't need to know how the penicillin's made. I didn't have a, I didn't have a lot of notes on this. There were two things that I felt were interesting in, in this chapter. First is we get to see more of Syl. Right. And just sort of her continued growth, her trying to have a sense of humor, but also embracing contradiction. Yes, because she she likes and also at the same time dislikes the fact that Rock, who somehow can see her, is overly respectful towards her, almost worshipful towards her. And she likes it, but she also doesn't like it. Yeah, I feel like that's a distinctly, well, I was about to say something stupid. I was going to say it's a distinctly human sort of thing to have to experience, but so would just about everything. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, dogs don't experience it, you know. Pine needles don't experience it. They probably don't experience anything else I would talk about. So it's kind of a <laughs> it's kind of a dumb thing. But um just sort of seeing her grow. So that was the first thing that I noted. The second thing is when they again talk about light eyes and shard bearers, you you get the sense that, you know, Kaladin obviously has some very deep emotions. It seems pretty obvious from the context and what's going on here, particularly in addition to something that comes up in chapter 27, that Kaladin, at the end of that first chapter, where we didn't get to see what happened at the end of the battle, killed that shard bearer and was punished for it. Right, and we also get reinforced with when we're talking about Syl in this chapter, how much she cares about honesty, how important it is for her, that Kaladin especially is honest, and we're not quite sure why, but it's sort of this this emerging conscience that she has, this emerging fully fleshed personality that she has, that that yeah. is something that's driven home over and over when we yeah. talk about this character. 
I just really like the development that happens here. You know, we had so much floundering with Kaladin trying to decide, you know, even deciding he wanted to live, then deciding he wanted to help the bridgemen, then trying to get them to work out or whatever. And it's just been kind of, he's just been kind of big, fat, wet slap after slap, (laughs) you know, everything he's tried to do. So it's like, oh, wait, this is actually a clever plan that he has. And it's cool to see him enlisting the help of, of at least two of the bridgemen to do it Mm -hmm. and starting to build a little bond. And especially when rock starts sharing his backstory and they just start talking a little bit more. I really enjoyed seeing things start to actually move for this character. That was really cool. We get a little bit more insight into Teft and rock. Well, a lot of insight into rock, but Teft as well. I think we get a little more insight. So what happens is rock and Teft and Kaladin, while they're on rock gathering duty, which is outside the camp, which Kaladin actually asks Gaz to put them on rock gathering duty, which is not does not endear him to no. the other bridgemen. But it gets them outside the camp, and so they sneak around. They get these um, this knobweed sap. They they sneak out and they get it, and then they have to take it somewhere. And as they're they're leaving their area of the camp, which they're technically allowed to do, but it's kind of dangerous for them. Teft is pretty uncomfortable with it because he doesn't want to get beat up by the soldiers and he's about ready to to book and Rock threatens him and is like, no, you're not going anywhere. And Teft is like, whatever. But when Kaladin says, Teft, we need you, that's what makes him stay. Yeah. So we get a little insight into his character. Also, apparently he does not care for his relatives. No, no, he doesn't. And how about Rock's backstory? He's a chef and he eats crab shells. It's true. So Rock is a horn eater, and we get a little glimpse into what their culture is like. They do actually eat horns. Yeah. And shells. Literally. Did you pick up what the chapter title, the significance there? No, of course I didn't. What's the chapter title again? It's called Many Uses. Many Uses for the Crab Shells? So Rock... You can make a bisque out of them. (laughs) So Rock came into Alethkar with his tribal leader, who is also his cousin, because in his people, a leader's servants are all his family members, which Teft thinks is weird, but that's the way they do it. So he comes down following his cousin. He's the chef in his cousin's entourage. And the people, the horn eaters, don't have any shards. So his cousin and, and all the other leaders, they, they make these periodic trips down to try and kill a shard bearer so that their people will have shards. And his cousin is not successful. Why are you, why are you shaking your head? No, it's just, it seems like a shitty way to have to go about life. Like, yes, it does. For sure. Like once every couple of years, we have to send one sucker <laughs> out to hunt down the baddest mofo in town. <laughs> and it's interesting because... Teft pretty much says as much. Teft and Kaladin yeah. are kind of like, like, what? And he's like, hey, you know what? One day, one of us will, one day it'll happen. A thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get the word shard blade one day. <laughs> so obviously, Rock's cousin is not successful. No. And everyone in his entourage gets made a slave. And Rock gets assigned to cook for Sadius. Oh, now I remember where the <laughs> title comes from. 
Rock is not happy about his cousin being killed, so he enhances Sadius's dinner with mm. Chuldong, thinking, you Alethi, you eat your food so spicy, you'll you, nobody's even going to notice. You won't even notice. They noticed. <laughs> and he says, Chuldung, it has many uses, I found. <laughs> yeah, a little heavy on the Chuldung. A little heavy on the Chuldung. So I thought that was pretty funny. We also see the this really important theme of leadership and leadership styles brought up again in this chapter. And it, pretty much this entire section, that's really one of the main themes that gets addressed. Because Kaladin is really struggling with how to even get the men in his care to want to live or improve their chances of survival. Cause at this point they don't. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it doesn't matter at this point that he might provide them with an edge of a shot of being less likely to die. You know, Ooh, we'll run faster. You know, maybe we'll get there a little earlier and less arrows will be shot at us. Maybe you'll drag me off and I won't get to eat for four weeks while I recover. Or maybe I'll just die slowly. You know, you're not giving them a lot of reason for hope. A lot of, there's nothing to look forward to. You know, and he's, he's just coming to that realization. He is. And, you know, when he's talking about it with Syl, about what he's doing wrong, and he says, you know, when I was a slave or before he had decided to live, I didn't care enough to be selfish because that's what Syl says. These these men are selfish. And he says about them, if their lives aren't worth living, then they aren't ever going to care. Yeah. So he's left wondering what is the thing he's going to need to, to give them to make their lives worth living. So Kaladin is talking to someone at some point about his duties. And this, they say, it's not that's not what being a bridge leader means. And, and Kaladin says... It means whatever we decide it means. And I think that's a very important moment for him as well. He's going to be the leader that he decides to be and do whatever is best for his men in whatever way he can. Yeah, I think it's going to be a real uphill struggle when you consider that they all belong to High Prince Sadius. If High Prince Sadius can't listen to Dalinar about what is strategically in their best interest because he's so blinded by their culture, then he sure as shit isn't going to care about some bridgemen who say, you're treating us like slaves. Like, (laughs) you know, he's not going to listen. If they become problematic, you know, or he thinks there's a threat of potential rebellion, he's just going to kill them all. Like, so I don't see this ending well as it stands. There's going to be something dramatic that's going to have to shape this up to shake it up because I suspect that Kaladin's probably not going to die in the next part. And I also suspect that by the end of the book, he's not going to remain a slave, but for that to happen, something dramatic has to take place. I don't know what that is yet. But you're not going to talk Sadius out of, you know, treat. he's not going to have a come to Jesus moment. Right. We've already seen Sadius justifying his use of the Bridgman to Dalinar. And he obviously has has worked it through in his mind that what he's doing is 
is the right thing and he's that he's morally justified in doing it. So he's, we've already seen him challenged on this and he has obviously has no moral qualms about what he's doing in his no. strategy. No. And in fact, none of the Alethi do. Dalinar is the only one who really has any problem. Yeah, and that's with the this. thing about it. It's not just it's not like Sadius is just a prick. I mean, he is. But it's not like he's just a prick. It's that their entire culture does not value human life. It doesn't val- it's not that they don't value Bridgman when Alethi light eyes get thrown off the chasms, they're like, "Meh." Like, so if they don't care about their own lieutenants, they sure as shit aren't going to care about a bunch of bridgemen. It's the entire culture. And it's an interesting commentary on how a culture's ideas about the afterlife shape that culture. True. Because when you see this, this disregard for human life, this especially soldiers dying, the prevailing response is, well, they're, they're fighting for the tranquil and holes now. That's what they're supposed to do. It's, a, you know... It's interesting to see how that factor plays in. Are you ready to talk about chapter 24? Chapter 24 is called The Gallery of Maps. And in this chapter, we see Dalinar beginning to try and convince the other high princes to try a joint plateau assault. It doesn't go very well. Adolin is worried because Dalinar is pretty much betting the future of their house on advice from the vision voice which tells him to trust Sadius, be strong, act with honor, and honor will aid you. Adolin finally confronts Dalinar about his fears, and then there are feelings. (laughs) Capital F. (laughs) So we get a lot of questions raised about Dalinar in this chapter. Is he mad? Yeah. Is, Is the vision voice a real thing? If so, who is it? Is he going to be successful in winning over the high princes? And we see we see him first approaching this high prince named Royon. I think that's how you'd pronounce good, it. Good. I It's better than what I came up with. And Royon is the weakest of the high princes, okay? So Dalinar kind of goes to him first. And even this guy, who really kind of has everything to gain, refuses to be swayed. Um, because he doesn't want to be beholden to another high prince. Even when Dalinar offers to let Royon take first set of shard plate and blade that they find that they're able to conquer, Royon it doesn't go for it. And that's interesting because it, just the last time we saw Dalinar, he had made a decision and promised his son Renarin that the next set he wins, he would give to him. So that's how important it is to Dalinar that he would kind of push back on that promise that he just yeah. made to his younger son. Well, well, what I thought was interesting about that particular is that he is contradicting what he said. The very next thing out of Royon's mouth is, you would do that? And Dalinar says, yes, on my honor. And he says, well, no one can question that. But it's in doing what is arguably an unhonorable thing in going back on his word to his son. We also find out that Dalinar has actually won two sets of Sharplate and Blades and has not given them to Renarin because he felt that it was best to give them to the strongest fighters and he's given them to the king to distribute to, to people who are wanting to earn his favor. Yeah. It's also interesting that he's done that 
and no one seems to be particularly thankful or grateful for it. Right. That's just not how the Alethi yeah. are. Like, thanks, loser. That's exact. They're a bunch of bro jocks. It's pretty ridiculous. They seriously are walking around with their popped collars. So this section was interesting to me where I talked about the map. There was a, a number of paragraphs there where I took a ton of notes. The first thing is that I just didn't realize how the High Princess kind of controlled the plateaus that they conquered. And then they would sell off or trade plateaus so that people could have better paths to the better perceived, you know, hunting grounds, right? And it's all, it, it looks like an actual board game. Oh, yeah. Like it literally plays like a board game. That is shocking to me. And then the other part is they have this like leaderboard for who's had the most gem hearts, right? It's like the big board at the car dealership. Yeah. You know, hey, Frankie, <laughs> I need to see you up on that board, Frankie. You got to move some Toyotas this month, man. <laughs> Double digits, Frankie. We all got mouths to feed. You know, like it's this just this game to them, you know, and they're so busy strategizing against each other and trying to find ways to outcompete their neighboring high princes to get to these better hunting grounds. There's no room left over for them to even begin to think about the greater strategies for how to actually win this war. Like they're fighting against each other. They're not fighting against the Parshendi. Yeah, totally. And yet somehow the Parshendi seem to be attacking less and less often, growing less and less numerous. So it's interesting. Yeah, and so therefore they assume that they're winning. Right, but really kind of any damage to them is incidental to the High Prince's real goal. Correct, yeah, yeah. And they seem to resent Dalinar for his access to the king and that he seems to kind of get what he wants, even though he's not playing the game their way. So that's interesting. So the other part that was interesting to me is the discussion of how they have like the the center plateau areas as you get closer to the tower, how they really don't they really don't have a good sense of what happens there, mm. particularly anything on the other side of it. So there's this whole half of the shattered plains that they know nothing about. No one's ever been able to successfully conquer the tower. They've only posted 27 raids over a six-year period of time. 27 sounds like a high number, but if it's your enemy's main point of defense, or at least you believe it is, and they're, and they're kind of control center, over a six-year span of time, you, you would think you would mount more than 27 raids on it. Also, that in that area closer to there, the chasm fiends pupate in much, much greater numbers. So if the presumption, it, well, if the goal was to go in there and surround them and starve them out, in six years you haven't been able to do it, Dalinar says many, many chapters ago that they didn't count on the gem hearts, they used the gem hearts for food. So if you know that they have greater access to gem hearts and you suspect that that's how they're avoiding, avoiding getting starved out, 
then how could you even possibly think you're winning? They have 10 times as many chasm fiends as you do. The place is lousy with chasm fiends, or uh, with gem hearts. Gem hearts are like worth less than like a $5 block of government cheese, as far <laughs> as they're concerned. No damn worth to it. Now, I, I suspect that it, for the Parshendi, it may not have anything to do with the gem hearts. They probably have a completely different view than the Alethi do. But I'm just saying that even from the their own mindset, they would be losing. And they just don't seem to get it. Yes, it's very interesting. I'm tired of these assholes. They're assholes for I'm, sure. I'm fed up. I feel like Wit. Yeah, and I, I like that Wit, even though he's not in this section, that character gives us... It's kind of a reader stand-in. It's exactly the phrase I was trying to think of. Good on you. Thank you for that. Yeah, he, he kind of is that voice that, that says the things that we want to say. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. And another character that's not in this chapter, but that's talked about is Sadius. And just quickly, we learn that he's been buying up all the other plateaus. So that, that give him easy access. So it's just another glimpse at this character you know he's not a warrior we've established that if there's a battle he's going to be standing in the back with his shard bow he is not charging into the fray he's not not a fighter but well i i don't think that's i think there's uh, there's a subtle distinction i want to make there there have been references to sadius in terms of his ability to fight as a swordsman and he's actually quite good oh he can if he wants to but he's very calculated and he's not going to put himself in harm way, harm's way unnecessarily. I think those are just two different things. Sure. I, yeah. I mean, he, he certainly, it's established that, that he can fight. Yeah. But that's not his thing. He's, that's not where he shines. If Sadius goes up against Dalinar, he's getting killed. Oh, yeah. A- absolutely. If he goes up against Adolin, he's dead. But, Having said that, Dalinar and Adolin are like the Jamie Lannister and the Hound. Exactly. Of this, you know, like they are the primo primo. If he goes up against 90% of anybody else in the army, well, he's going to kick their ass. Being a shard bearer. True. And, yeah. and he doesn't have a shard blade, but he has plate. You yeah. know, we, we know that he killed Rock's cousin pretty easy, easily, we're assuming. Yeah. So, um, but that's not, he's not a, he's not a master soldier. He's not a, but he is a manipulator and a politician. Yeah, absolutely. So we just kind of see that continual contrast between Sadius and Dalinar. Yeah, very. I mean, whereas Dalinar is by is the significantly better fighter, but he gets outmaneuvered by Sadius politically left and right. And I'm going to talk for a minute, too, in this chapter about the Sunmaker. He's briefly mentioned as being the last Alethi king to unite the high princes before Gavilar, yeah, we're Gavilar. assuming. Yep. And we keep hearing the hierocracy mentioned. And just as a, a refresher, the hierocracy was a group of priests that basically decided to kind of take over the world. And we, we heard them talked about a couple of chapters ago, and they did so by pretending that there were that they had had all of these visions of the future and they were able to manipulate all these leaders and basically build this huge power base and until they were destroyed and then it was found out that all of that stuff was made up 
And so because of that, now there's this huge taboo amongst the Alethi uh, against trying to see the future. And that's causing Dalinar problems where, you know, he's having these visions and, and that's really kind of touching on that taboo. So we had all that kind of laid out there for us. And then in this chapter, it's revealed that the Sunmaker was the one who took down the hierarchy. Mm. So we see this, I think just think it's really interesting to watch the the Alethi people where they're at now and they're, they're all their selfish asshole glory. How did they come to be this way? Because we had a picture of them in Dalinar's vision during the time of the Radiance, where they were these noble protectors. Then somewhere along the line, we had the hierarchy come along. We had something called the Recreants that we're not sure about. And that's actually mentioned in the next chapter. No, it might be. No, it's not in this quite in this chapter. It's like the next one with Dalinar. But so we had the Radiance. And then we have this, this rise of corruption in the church, the religious order, that leads to the sun maker coming along. And he is sort of the author of the most of the political philosophies that the Alethi have today. So we see, you know, this book, and again, we'll get to this in the next Dalinar chapter, but this book, The Way of Kings, that Dalinar has become kind of obsessed with and that his brother was obsessed with before was the old standard of leadership and nobility. And today that's considered like borderline blasphemous. And it was this guy, the Sunmaker, who kind of as a reaction to mm-hmm. all of the corruption from the previous leadership styles that came up with this new way. And so a quote that um, I think Royon when he is talking to Dalinar, quotes the Sunmaker, saying, all wars are games, the greatest kind, with pieces lost, real lives, the prizes captured making for real wealth. This is the life for which men exist. And it's a direct contrast to what we saw, you know, is, is the Alethi people were back when the Radiants were around, back when they considered themselves, you know, we, we will die so that the rest of the world doesn't have to. Yeah. So I just think that's interesting. I think that's an important thematic thing in this book. Yeah, absolutely. There was one other thing along that same lines, just from a historical note. We find out in this chapter, we knew that The Way of Kings was written by Nohaden. Or Nahadan. Correct us. So uh, one of the other uh, kings, he's the king who wrote The Way of Kings. That part we knew already. What we find out here in this chapter is that it existed prior to the Heralds departing. That's a long-ass time ago. Long-ass time ago. So we have another planet that's existed for 4,500 years and basically has had very little actual progress from a societal technological standpoint, similar to Westeros or Planetos. I mean, if anything, it sounds like it's gone backwards. Yeah, We had the Radiance with this... At more, much more advanced technology. We don't know what's happened the between now and then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I need a timeline. It's starting, they're starting to get complicated. And I think it's not helped that a lot of it is confusing even to the Alethi themselves. There are yeah. periods of their history that are lost to them. Again, that comes up in the next Dalinar chapter, but... Yeah, I suspect as well that there are like we have in our own society, the winners get to write the history books. So 
there are pieces of what they think of as historically accurate that probably aren't. It's true. And, and I like what you said about the winner, kind of the, the winner's perspective is what is what colors history. And it's so interesting when we have this direct contrast between that prehistoric kind of radiant era model of Alethi leadership and the current ideals that are held by the high princes, which are established by the sun maker. And we see that right after, you know, we're contrasting Dalinar's struggle with his leadership style and Kaladin's two ends of the social spectrum. Yeah. Dealing with the same thing. And it sounds to me like the corruption in the church was a crucial factor in like the birth of this new kind of cynical, self-centered government style, which yeah. I think is interesting because we, we kind of, we have this question of what happens when a nation like loses its religion, so to speak, and loses its moral center. And we have the, the Alethi. They can't keep up with you when they lose their religion. I mean, they become I assholes, apparently. I don't know if they can do it. <laughs> but I, I've said too much. Go ahead. <laughs> Are you ready for chapter 25? I'm ready. Chapter 25 is called The Butcher. And it's a flashback to Kaladin's childhood seven years ago. So this is the same year as the last flashback where he failed to save that little girl. And it's a half a year after Wistilo's death. How do you pronounce his name? I just said Wistilo, but in the past I've said Wistilo. There's no L in there. What? Hold on. It's Wistio or Wistio. Wistio? I have the book right here in my lap. All right. I'm opening it up. Hang on. Oh, shit. I was wrong. Wistio? That's not right. <laughs> I like the sound I'm of Wistolo better, but... Brandon Sanderson is wrong. <laughs> you My know brain what? put an L in there for a reason. <laughs> Dang, I have read this book like five or six times. Wistio, Wistio, Wistiao? I don't know. It's going to be hard to, oh, damn. to undo that for you, I'm sure. Uh, that's all right. I did it with Adeline and... Adolin and, and Sidious and Sidious and Jean. We're not talking. To, I'm not talking about Jean. <laughs> Let's talk. Okay, we're, all, we're it's okay. We're gonna be all right. <laughs> Who? Well, while I'm I'm mentally recovering from that. Before I get into the plot summary, I wanted to talk for a minute about time on Roshar. Because when I was trying to figure out, okay, seven years ago, is this the same year as that or whatever, I stumbled across some some interesting posts about how time passes on Roshar. Okay. So a year on Roshar has 500 days. Okay. However, the days are shorter, like 20 hours. There's also a 1,000-day cycle with different high storms around the new year. So the years are based on these high storms. Okay. Okay. Every year has 10 months of 50 days each. And each month has 10 five-day weeks. So two weeks in our world equals three weeks there. So what's interesting is there has been a lot of speculation. And if you go on to the 17th Shard, some of those other discussion forums, as to how old the characters actually are. 
because like a year on Roshar is actually like 1.2, 1.3 years. And so it's been a lot of back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then I found this uber nerdy spreadsheet that one nice. of Brandon Sanderson's continuity editors, editors, uh, Karen Alstrom put up there where she has like, I mean, it is nice. You can go on brandonsanderson.com. This was back in November that she posted this. But it's beautiful of how she keeps track of all the dates and how and how she she times them out. But one thing that stuck out to me of that article that she wrote about time on Roshar was that um, she said, you know, but when writing, Brandon doesn't really pay attention to the differences. Because there are some people who will be like, oh, well, Kaladin's 19, he says he's 19, but really he's closer to 24. So, you know, but she says he doesn't really, really think about that. So I think when it comes to the character's ages... And maturity levels, they can be taken at face value. But I think also when we're talking about actually looking at time passing in the book to remember that it's not a year is not 365 days. Mm -hmm. A day is not 24 hours. A day is not 24 hours. A month is actually 50 days. Um, A week is five days, that kind of thing. If, If you're trying to keep track of when things are happening where. It's more of a side note, but there was a spreadsheet involved, so I had to get into it. So the plot summary, this chapter, the town's atmosphere has been growing steadily more hostile toward Kaladin's family since Wistio's death. Kaladin overhears several women spreading rumors about his father. The town suspects that Liren stole Wistio's spheres. He also talks to his mother about the rumors, his internal struggle over his two destinies intensifying. The tension rises even more when the town's new bright lord, Roshon, arrives. And turns out to be a right prick. That's what happens in the chapter. Yeah. So along the same lines of what you're talking about with the calendars and the time, the thing I noticed is that we've heard several times about the weeping. Yes. The weeping. Which for boys is like the entire year that you're 15. (laughs) Yeah, for girls too. And for girls it's a bit earlier. 13. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, there's a couple of references to like a boy, like this boy has not yet reached his 10th weeping, you know, and I get the sense, obviously, that it's clearly some marker of a year. It sounds like it's related to high storms in some way, but it's interesting that we haven't really been explicitly told what it means. Yeah. Weeping is marks the new year. Yeah. Um, it's not. I think it's I don't think it's a spoiler for me to tell you. It's just it's a period of time where there's not a high storm. It's just like constant rain. And so you weep? Well, it's oh, like, because of the rain. Because of the rain. rain. I'm sorry. Okay. It's gotcha. like a, it's like a constant sort of gentle rain, but there's no high storm. Gotcha. Okay. And like it happens regularly, I think, so that it it kind of marks the, the next year, basically. And given the volatility of the seasons, if there is sort of that one constant, right. it would make sense that you would build a calendar on that. Right. Yep. Okay. The other note that I have is around Kaladin's mother. Hasina. Hasina, yes, yeah. He says, we never really talked about her family very much. And I'm like, God damn it. And we got another mother with a mysterious identity. (laughs) She's the dark-eyed daughter of some light-born or light-eyes bastard child. Mm -hmm. And so... He's secretly related to Sadius, and he doesn't know it. We got something (laughs) like that happening here. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not mm-hmm because that's true or not true. I'm just could see why you think that. <laughs> but she ain't making eye contact right now either. So we also we do find it's mentioned in this chapter that went because he's talking about Laurel that when light eyes and dark eyes marry their children could be either light eyed or dark eyed yeah. raising the possibility that the children could outrank their parents because he's talking to his mother about why he spent so much time with Laurel and that you know she says that yeah she had hoped that maybe they would get together their family being of the second non, which is pretty much almost as high as you can go and when you have dark eyes. Yeah. But that technically you could marry a light-eyed daughter of a lesser lord. But Laurel has not been allowed to see him since her father's death. And so Rochon shows up, played by Steven Seagal. <laughs> Good one. You know, I had a different casting in my head. I can't remember the guy's name, but I had a, a casting in my head and it's a guy who looks similar. Mm-hmm. But I, I like that, Stephen. He's a all. prick. Yeah. Where's a Takama, unironically? <laughs> <laughs> He's got a very, very tight ponytail. <laughs> he does. <laughs> He's obviously not happy to be there in Hearthstone. We don't know why he's there, but... And we also see in this chapter kind of a mystery arise about Liren. Um, Did he steal the spheres? Kaladin assumes that they are... This is a lie that's been made up by the townspeople, but when he mentioned it to his mother, she kind of doesn't meet his eyes. So we don't know whether or not he actually did that. We like to assume that he wouldn't. We also know that Hasina's parents didn't like him, but that he, even with everything that's been going on with the townspeople, between him and the townspeople, when Roshone shows up, so Roshone shows up, so here's the new town's lord, and everyone's like, oh gosh, what's he going to be like? And he rolls up, and he's obviously wealthier than Wistio. He's got all these horses. He's got all this furniture. He pulls up, steps out of his carriage. Everyone's standing there looking at him. He sneers in disgust and gets back in the carriage without <laughs> saying Doesn't say a word. Anything. And the townspeople are like, oh shit. They're they're very anxious. And so Liren is the only one brave enough and he sees the anxiety this is causing and he speaks up and he's like, Hey, Lord Rochon, how how you doing? You wanna <laughs> Yeah. Wanna maybe say something? You wanna come see the town? And it Rochon gives it to him, you know, he says something nasty to him, but that he's brave enough to do that, speak up on behalf of the town, even after they've been shitty to him. Yeah. So the title of this chapter is The Butcher, and I feel like that has two significances. One, we open on Kaladin overhearing these two women talking about his family and how they cut into people and how unnatural that is. And so it definitely alludes to the town's opinion of Liren. The Butcher is apparently also when you draw a pair and a trio in a game of breakneck fictional game in this book Mm -hmm. i'm assuming if it's a real game someone tell me i'd like to learn it but what's significant about the butcher when you draw the butcher whether you win or not depends on the other throws that you make and more importantly on the throws of everyone else and what we really see in these chapters where kaladin is remembering his childhood is his sense of powerlessness over his future his identity crisis is just deepening more and more with the ostracism of his family and his this core of this crisis is 
what is he going to do with his life? He wants to be a soldier. His father wants him to be a surgeon. It's very, it's just a very timely uh, kind of poignant theme to touch on. And it's, it's neat to have that interspersed in with the current Kaladin that we see. Yeah. We also have an interesting conversation between him and his mother that touches on some important themes as well as to why the townsfolk react to their family the way that they do. You know, Kaladin comes in, he's all, he's all pissed off. He's upset. And his mother kind of speaks up for them and says, don't hate these people. You know, they, they don't, there are things they don't understand and they hate knowledge. And she says, you know, your father won't give them a ward to heal them. He'll insist that they stay in bed, drinking water, take some foul medicine, wash their wound every day. And it's hard. They'd rather leave it all to fate. But that's the price of being a surgeon. Having power over the lives of men is an uncomfortable responsibility. I forget where I was going with that quote. (laughs) Oh, why people hate knowledge. I don't know. I just thought that was a very kind of timely timely commentary on on humanity and especially with the things that Kaladin is struggling with at this age you know is he going to allow himself to be in that uncomfortable place to be different from the people around him to fulfill his destiny and to achieve the most he can achieve or is he going to kind of take the easier road in order to fit in yeah and that's just something I think we all can relate to when we were that age that age So chapter 26 is called Stillness. So in this chapter, Dalinar is listening to The Way of Kings on Audible, and Ah. he's... The Duke and Duchess podcast brought to you by (laughs) audible.com. It was like the original Audible. Right? Had to be rich enough to pay someone to sit there and read to you, or you had to get married. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dalinar is listening to The Way of Kings, and he's struggling with the rapid changes that he's undergoing. His reflections are interrupted by horns, indicating that a chasm fiend is pupating nearby. To everyone's surprise, Dalinar decides to try and win the gem heart. Their assault is slowed, however, by Sadius, who decides to accompany him so that he can interrogate his soldiers about the king's saddle strap. Dalinar is distracted during the battle and several times is overwhelmed by feelings of disgust for what he is doing. Despite this, they win the gem heart and chase the Parshendi off. As they flee, Dalinar glimpses a Parshendi shard bearer watching him. Yeah, this is the chapter where I had the most notes. Well, note me up, baby. I got some notes. I got all kinds of notes for you. One of the sections that he's reading here in The Way of Kings they start talking about a candle flame. Yes. And how just by moving around the room, he the candle flame will flicker. He can put it out with just a pinch of his fingers. But at the same point in time, if he's not careful, he'll burn the whole damn house down with that candle, right? And the candle flame is some sort of symbol, clearly. I think we can talk about what it's a symbol for. I'm kind of speculating, and I know this feels a little ham-fisted, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, I'm kind of speculating that the candle flame is an analogy for the dark-eyed people. Yes, and actually one of the quotes that Dalinar is having read to him that I wrote down was this. The lives of men are like candle flames, fragile and deadly. Left alone, they lit and warmed. Let run rampant, they would destroy the very things they were meant to illuminate. So yes, I think you're right on. That's exactly what um, 
Nohadon, mm-hmm. Nohadon, is trying to say about the candle flames. Or, I mean, it may be that without the, I, I, I almost speculate having heard you read it. See, apparently having a woman read it to you. <laughs> um, I, I almost wonder, given now that I know when it was written, if he's talking more about men who don't have sort of the a spiritual guidance or ethos to guide them, that when they run rampant on their own will, like we see with the Alethi bright eyes, that that's when they tear the whole fabric of the society down. Because it seems like that's what's happened since the recreants is that all these kingdoms have splintered off. You know, this protector spirit that the Alethi were given has just turned into bullying run, you know, organized bullying is all it is. Um, So I almost, so I really actually don't agree with my initial assessment now. I think it might just be more about that, about human nature without the guiding the guiding force of of religion yeah i saw a girl do a really weird thing with a candle one time really it doesn't have anything to do with the podcast i'm just okay you can tell me about that later if you want <laughs> i'll scribe it for you thank you yeah i appreciate that so another thing that dalinar says uh, he says our homeland is stretched to nearly breaking. And I'm like, really? Is it really? I don't know that it is. So we haven't actually, as far as in this book, seen anything of their actual homeland. True. They're not in their country right now. No, I get that. I I understand that. But the uh, king's mother came... Back and she was like, ah, the queen's got it all under hand. Yeah, she would say that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so my take, based on what I have heard, is that it it does it seems like there's some you know political things going on at home, but not like catastrophic things that are going on at home. So, like, I don't, I didn't get that sense that that was accurate. Well, I I think what Navani is saying when we're talking about a few chapters ago about why she decided to come back was more that if she's going to do anything important, it's going to be in the war camps because everyone important is there. Yeah, true. You know, what we've seen, the the only really gl- actual glimpse we've seen of the, of Alethkar, out, you know, outside of the people that are at the Shattered Plains are when Kaladin is in the army and what it's like for him there you know, lesser lords having border skirmishes against each other, killing each other. True. Yeah. So we we see that. We don't see a unified kingdom at all. And even here, where the Alethi are supposedly the most unified in the Vengeance Pact, they're really not. They're really still scheming against each other. They can't even cross plateaus that are quote-unquote owned by another high prince without permission. It's not unified at all. And I think Dalinar says several times, this is the weakest time of any dynasty. You know, these men were united by Gavilar. They respected him. And now it's his, and the men who will come after are going to be united by being part of something because they've always been a part of something. But Mm -hmm. it's these men right now 
are they going to stay loyal to Elokar, loyal to the idea of, of a kingdom or not? And it's pretty touch and go as to whether that's how long that's going to last. Gotcha. Okay. I think that's what he means by that. Well, and I know there are a few other mentions of like neighboring kingdoms getting better technologies or pushing on the border. So, so there, so there are some, some outside forces at play as well. Right. But it's interesting because Dalinar in this one, he's, he's very disturbed by the confrontation with Adolin and he was really questioning the visions and the visions seem to all stress one thing, which is unite them, unite them. And this is the first time that he kind of stops and says, you know, these, these commands to unify actually kind of sound like what the hierarchy was saying when it tried to conquer the world, you know, 500 years ago. And, you know, again, we hear the hierarchy being mentioned and that, that was not a good time in their history. And it's probably one of, kind of one of the first things that they remembered. I think we're supposed to be spending a lot of time, and we probably haven't given it enough of its due, I think, of questioning whether or not what Dalinar is seeing is real. Well, he's certainly questioning Yeah, it. his son's certainly questioning it, it. Pretty much everyone except for him is questioning. Is pretty sure that he's, losing that it's not mind. real. He's losing yeah. his mind. Well, and we have... We have a couple of different clues outside of of that. We have what he's seen in his visions that we know to be real, such as the the glowing stormlight and the people f- zipping around in the sky, which... Yes, because we have seen Seth do that. Correct. So we know that that is real, so, and there's not like there's historical references to it that that he would have so there's no other way he could have learned it and so, very interesting that i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you no, off go ahead. but it's very interesting that dalinar doesn't make the connection because seth was seen displaying these powers that no one else has ever seen and there were people who survived that's true to yeah. tell about it it's interesting that dalinar doesn't make that connection yeah yeah that's true that's a good point on the other hand we have the the vision telling him to trust Sadius, and we have the behavior of Sadius looking very much like he's not somebody to trust. You know, so that is a piece of evidence to say maybe he's losing his mind. Maybe everyone's right, you know. So I think we're supposed to kind of go down that road of is it right, is you know, and weighing sort of that evidence. I think you and I both feel like the visions are real, so we're not going to give that probably as much weight, I think, as Brandon Sanderson would like us to. I did notice something that I thought was potentially a good piece of foreshadowing. So when Sadius approaches, he's wearing a helmet that looks almost like a crown. And I'm like... What a prick. Foreshadowing, mm. you know? Yeah, Sadius is really in this book, embodying the Alethi nobility. He kind of embodies everything that they value, you know? And it's interesting because with that being said, he's not a cardboard character. No. he He's not just doing what he does just because. He really truly believes that he is doing what's best for the kingdom as well. And he really has a lot of contempt 
for Dalinar and his all of these changes that he's going through. And he keeps saying to him, you know, that book that you're reading ruined Gavilar. It ruined him. It ruined the kingdom. And, you know, he just sees Dalinar as sanctimonious, as as less than a man, and as not what is good for the kingdom. Yeah, and I, I it wouldn't shock me, I think it might even actually be one of my predictions, it wouldn't shock me if Sadius does go out of his way to have Dalinar to get rid of Dalinar. But because he thinks it's weakening the king and he thinks it's a dangerous thing, it wouldn't at all shock me if he tries to get Adolin to be in charge and, and to get Dalinar to essentially step down you know, or to force him into stepping down. I kind of think that's what's going to happen. Time will tell. So a couple of things I think to put a pin in that get thrown out in this chapter. Oh, I'm not even close to oh. that. Let's lay the next one on me. So Dalinar and Adolin hop onto a plateau and fight like 40 Parshendi. Yeah, they do. Back to back. It's bad donkey. Yeah, one of them takes out his guitar. It's an Ibanez gem. <laughs> Starts shooting electricity from the neck during his solo. <laughs> it's so metal, right? It's totally metal. And then Dal- or Dalinar starts... Kicking corpses. He's corpse kicker. <laughs> it's totally metal. You know, like, it was cool. What weird-ass strategy is that? We're going to leap onto this narrow precipice and fight everybody while the uh, while they deploy the bridge. It's a dangerous fucking tactic. Like, so that's what, I think that's why when you were like, you were like, Sadius is sitting back like a pussy. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, no, Dalinar and Adolin are, are dumb like that. Like, there's bravery, and I appreciate you leading from the front, but think of the political turmoil if either one of them dies, or God forbid, both of them. It's it's that's somewhat true, and Dalinar sort of mentions that. And yeah, in fact, right before it. they charge, yeah. he looks at Adolin and says, "You've never you argue with me about everything, but you've never argued about this." And Adolin says, "No, these are my men too, and this is the right thing to do." Now that being said, it is very very difficult to kill someone with shard plate. Yeah, almost impossible unless you also have shard plate. H- and however, in fact. Pretty much the only way that the Parshendi could manage it would be to completely overwhelm them and and shove them off the cliff. But that's but but that's the problem is they put themselves exactly in a position where that is the highest probability of happening. <laughs> so I, I think what's important to understand as well is how difficult. So we're picturing a bridge assault as has been described by Callot from Kaladin's point of view. Yeah. Where the men run up, they throw the bridges, blah, blah, blah. No, I get that like this a is completely minutes. different. Yeah. So, so Dalinar's alternative would be to let his men stand there for, you know, 15, 20 minutes and yeah, just yeah, get yeah. full of arrows. Oh, I get that. However yeah, long yeah. it takes them to drag the chawls up, lift. Yeah. I mean, there. I don't know. I think there might be a picture somewhere. 
Okay. Of yeah. the Chal Bridges. But it's, I mean, it takes a long time. Yeah. So he's talking about losing a lot of men. Whereas with the way he and Adolin are doing it, they're able, they're able with their shard plate to hold back the Parshendi long enough for this bridge to get down. Yeah. In fact, the Parshendi break before the bridge is even fully deployed. Or I think they I, no, do. I, no, I no, don't no, think no. they do. No, you're no. Right. Yeah, yeah. because no, the I'm... the Rashadium come up and and everybody else comes in and starts fighting as well. Yeah, but they're right. able yep. to just hold enough space so that they can, you know, get the chulls. I mean, all the Parshendi would have to do would be shoot the chulls. You know, yeah, That's, true. Yeah, it's hard to protect them. Yeah. So, but again, Sadius would agree with you. He obviously thinks Dalinar's a dumbass. So the Parsh- but again, it's that it's that what style of leadership do you and what Dalinar's one of the things in the way of kings that he he talks about a lot is do you ask someone to do something that you wouldn't do yourself? Yeah, you know the uh, the Parshendi get enraged when you move their dead, especially when you kick them across the field at them. Well, yeah, that seems a little over the top. The um. I believe it's mentioned one other time. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is Don't they say that the Parshendi just leave their dead on the battlefield? Yes. Okay. We find out in the next chapter more about what kind of happens in the chasms and how when the high storms come through, they flood. And the... and. Um, which part of why I was asking questions about the rain and stuff last time because I was trying to get a sense because um, I... I've spent time in chasms like that. Have you? Well, when I lived out in the, in Arizona in the okay. desert, yeah. I mean, not. I mean, it's nothing not like that. Not that deep, yeah. Don't, yeah, I mean, but um, I know how dangerous they can be in a rainstorm. So they talk about how they flood and how the floodwaters seem to go westward and push everything towards the Alethi and away from the Parshendi. And yet we find very few Parshendi dead when they go down there. Hmm. Yeah, at least it's certainly, they certainly seem surprised. That, yeah, like, not that it's It's un- not super commonplace. Yeah, it's not unheard of. It's not like they never see them, which would be, I mean, that would be really remarkable, but it's fairly rare. However, they leave their dead on the battlefield. The Alethi usually don't leave their dead on the battlefield, so it's strange that you would see that like that. So what's happening? Don't know yet. Uh, the other thing is, first time I've noticed that they specifically say that the Parshendi are not human. Yes. Which I did not get to this point. Or they don't consider them human. Yeah, and that, I don't, yeah. Are they not human or are they not considered human because they seem pretty human like well to be fair the alethi aren't human they're rosharan this is another planet we're talking about but they call themselves humans yes they call themselves human okay what i'm what i'm saying is the alethi aren't human as we picture human they don't yeah, have you know that, they don't yeah. have the same physical characteristics someone on earth would have but they don't consider the parshendi to be the same species as them would is that 
well, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, is that because they are legitimately not human or is that because, let me take that back. Is that because they are legitimately not the same species as the Alethi or, or is that a racist thing? Would, would the Shin consider Barshendi human? Would the Alethis consider Shins human? Yes. The Alethis consider Shins human, but not Parshendi. As far as whether that's true or not, I think that remains to be seen. Okay. Sounds good. So they have to kill the unborn chasm fiend in order to collect the gem heart. Yes. Pupating chasm fiend. Correct. Yeah, yeah. The pupating chasm fiend. So if the Parshendi truly worship the chasm fiend, then maybe this is why they, maybe it's not about the gem hearts. Maybe it's because they don't want the chasm fiends to be killed. Now, I suspect that the Parshendi are using gem hearts because they're not running out of food. Right. But perhaps they're doing it in this reverential, special, spiritual way and recognizing what that sacrifice is. And then the Alethi come out here and they're just like, Yahoo! <laughs> We're going to cut us some jam hearts out and leave the carcass. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the cowboys it's on the very plane. wild west. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, we're going to cut these horns right off and then we're just going to leave them to rot here in the sun. You know, uh, maybe that's why they fucking hate the Alethi. You know, I don't know. So just something to think about. The other thing I noticed is when Adolin collects the gem heart, there is glory spread mm-hmm. that appears. So I just had to sort of wonder if spren are originating from like where do it gets me down into the question of what are spren and where do they originate from right where do they come from if everyone is seeing the same thing then that tells me that that means there's some sort of definitive truth you know yes so in other words what what I'm getting at is that if if everybody's maybe they're not seeing the same spren, but they're seeing the same thing, right? If glory spren are a real thing and not just a manifestation of peop- of a certain weird cultural phenomenon or a uh, or something else, then glory spren should only be present if the situation is truly glorious. And I just wonder if there's a a god above in this world who is a creator god and he created alethi and parshendi and chasm fiends would he consider it glorious for one of his creations to kill the other creations pupating you know spawn would that be considered glorious and would the spren come from that i tend to think no so it makes me feel think that the spren are some sort of relativistic phenomenon. I don't know what it means, but it's just strange to me that glory spren would be present in a situation that really only a narrowly defined segment of that world population would consider a glorious situation. 
So it's more of a social manifestation or a psychological manifestation than something that's actually true in the physical world. Yeah, I mean, I think that it depends on if you know you're not at all. You're you're thinking just just the right amount. But I think it depends on do you consider glory a discrete phenomenon like it in and of itself or do you consider glory an emotion? Yeah, yeah. I see, because yeah. we definitely have things that are spread that are drawn by physical like thing, you know, things, yeah. flame spread, rot spread, rot spread, that kind of thing. But we also have these emotions spread, which yeah. would be subjective. That's so true. if, if yeah. Adolin is feeling particularly glorious as he would, you know, he hasn't been allowed to go. He's not allowed to duel anymore. He hasn't been allowed to go on a plateau run in, in months. And all, now he's, you know, finally mm-hmm. getting this gem heart, he would feel particularly glorious. So it could be the, the emotion of feeling glorious that's yeah, drawing that's this friend. Yeah. So, but I like the way you're thinking. The spren are important. Keep thinking about it. I shall. I shall. So that those are all my observations that I want to bring up for chapter 26. So one or two just small things to kind of put a pin in as you're as you're keeping reading. You know, they they talk in this chapter and I'm not sure if it's been mentioned before, but I think it has, but they keep mentioning the thrill. Yeah. With a capital T. Yeah. So for me when I'm oh, reading I didn't a fantasy, it was a capital T and I usually look for that. Yeah, capital T thrill because that's usually um indicative in fantasy novels that it's something significant yeah you know back when dalinar was having the way of kings read to him i noticed in one line the word truth was capitalized too and i thought that was significant but yes the thrill is like this the lust for battle you know the the kind of battle rage we've we've heard of that before but but men don't speak of it often it's kind of a private thing but the fact that it's capitalized yeah, I, I actually had a note in here in this section. I don't read every single note because we can just go on forever. But I have a note in here where I question, is it something specific to light eyes? Because other than Kaladin, we don't we don't we only ever see it mentioned amongst light eyes. We only have a handful of characters, so I don't know that that means anything. Well, and we see Kaladin, we see Kaladin talking about how he feels fighting and yeah. talking about fighting a lot, and he never uses that term, the thrill. True. So. Well, and the other soldiers that he was in, that he trained with, didn't talk about it either. That's why I kind of, but they were all dark-eyed soldiers. That's why I sort of wondered, is it something distinct to light eyes? that dark eyes don't have. Well, and what we see with Dalinar in this, during this battle is he starts to fight the familiar, the thrill comes and it's sort of his glory at the carnage and this sort of berserker rage that he goes into. And it's immediately followed by a wave of disgust at what's happening. And he's like, Oh gosh. And then he almost gets killed. And then the thrill comes back, but it's subdued and it's, this is sort of a a signal to him that there's something really wrong with me. And in the midst of all of this, this inner voice says these words to him. First, it says these weapons were meant to protect Mm -hmm. at one time. And then it says life before death. 
and he's like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, it's like Morgan Freeman's voice is, that's how I pictured it. <laughs> it's been like life before death. Say Wataneo. But this is a, this is obviously a significant event for him. He doesn't quite understand what's going on. It's not clear whether this is just his mind supplying these words or is there actually some kind of metaphysical thing going on? We don't know. But this is this is kind of a significant event. Also, that there's a lot of windspread mentioned here, like right when the bridges go down and he and Adolin are fighting. There's windspread zipping around and then that's when he kind of hears this voice. Yeah, and that comes up next chapter as well. Yes. You said a couple things to put a pin in. We talked about the thrill. Oh, one other thing gone. that I kind of picked up here is the fact that the Way of Kings, the book, The Way of Kings, that after Latima leaves the room, this is, that's the, the lady who reading. was reading it to him. Yeah. He walks over to it and he says that he can almost feel the words emanating from the page, like stormlight from a sphere. And then he says that the vision started several months after he had started reading it. Yeah. So that, that was interesting. Yeah, and I, I'm sure those things are related to his ill feelings middle in the middle of the fight as well. So also my last note that I wrote down was man, I want some shard plate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be, Cause that just sounds fun. Be pretty groovy. I want to jump a chasm. You'd be doing parkour in shard plate. Damn straight. In the carpool line after school, <laughs> picking up the kids in my shard plate. I could see it. There you go. None of those moms would mess with me. That's because it's sorry, it, Becky's mom. Because <laughs> it's have life, time for your crap today. It's life or death in the kids' pickup lane. It is. You don't know what goes. You on don't there. know. <laughs> Mothers be throwing down. <laughs> so chapter twenty-seven is called Chasm Duty. No hidden meaning there, really, in this chapter. Kaladin and Bridge Four get put on chasm duty. That's what she said. <laughs> You're on chasm duty tonight. Oh yeah. <laughs> so in this chapter, Kaladin sells his antiseptic to the old apothecary for much more than he was expecting, but only after dodging the man's con and threatening to expose him to the army. Gaz sends Bridge Four to chasm duty even though it isn't their turn. Oh, man. I had to do chasm duty last Friday. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> In the chasms, they collect... <laughs> Some people don't do chasm duty. It's bad for your teeth. <sighs> That's an old wives' tale. <laughs> In the chasms, they collect salvage from the bodies that have dropped there. The men are pretty unhappy with Kaladin. When Moash taunts him for holding a spear, he astounds them by breaking into an advanced kata. After chasm duty, Kaladin deploys his secret weapon, a pot of Rock's stew. He spends most of his money buying ingredients and has Rock whip up a pot of stew. This draws the bridgemen out, and just like that, they're reminded that life is worth living. 
So I really like this chapter. Yeah, I did too. You, you kind of see the fruition of everything that Kaladin has been working towards, and it's yep. very emotionally satisfying. Yeah. I mean, the knobweed's starting to get old and dried <laughs> up. Hey, it happens to everyone. I can only squeeze two or three drops out of it. <laughs> it's not what it used to be. <laughs> So I didn't have too many comments in the first part with the with the old man at the apothecary because that's pretty straightforward. I thought it was cool, you know, particularly how uh, Kaladin was able to figure out that the guy was playing him, you know. But it was fairly straightforward. I didn't find a lot of hidden meaning in it. There was more stuff in the chasm section, however. Uh, the first note I have is how this would be a really awesome twist on the classic D&D dungeon. Oh, yeah, it would. Right? You got this narrow, maze-like, quote, hallways. They're not really hallways. The random dead bodies, traps, the floods can come through, this constantly shifting landscape so it's never the same thing, limited ways in or out. I bet... Brandon Sanderson runs one hell of a D&D game. Especially since nobody important ever dies. Well, in the first 27 chapters. 400 pages, man. I want more body count. Sweetie, so we are 400 pages into what is so far a 4,000 page narrative. We're 10% of the way through. Body count. (laughs) This is a slow burn of a book. You knew that going in. I did. I did. I did. So there's something also strange about the odd placement of where the corpses are, like, mm-hmm. um, which I, like, he points it out, mm-hmm. which usually indicates that there's something to it. I didn't necessarily think it would be that odd. Uh, you know, sometimes floods subside and. Where something rests is where it rests, you know. When you go through and you look at like an arroyo or a wash after a flood, certainly the majority of things will get shoved, you know, kind of, you know, down dramatically far downstream. But you also find lots of random ass shit just in the middle because that's just where you were when the water ran out, you know, or finally or got caught on something else that ended up shifting later downstream. There's a million things that could happen there. But because it was pointed out, I'm putting a flag in it. Right. Also, Kaladin, you know, kind of is going down memory lane. He's getting harassed by uh, his detractors. He's kind of alone in his head with his memories, a spear, the wind, a wind spren, Seth, the wind dancer, what was he called? Wind runner. Wind runner. We see wind spren in the previous chapter. So somehow wind spren are tied to this, uh, you know, this freaky ability of his, uh, you know, to dodge arrows. It's a good thought. I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, in that case it would not be difficult for me to imagine 
windspread manipulating the path of a missile object flying through the air. But that's not the only thing that we see going on here. Uh, So I don't know what the connections are, but there's a lot of points of correlation you know, going on here. And we're, we're seeing the wind thing constantly come up anytime we see this referenced. Good catch. I, I love this five or six times in, I tend to catch, you tend to catch it. I love the scene where Kaladin breaks into the Kata. It's the prose there is lovely. It's very, very well written. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. I enjoyed that part as well. Totally. It's bad donkey. Yeah. The other thing is I get the sense that like Moash in particular and Gaz are talking behind Kaladin's back and plotting behind his back. It definitely sounds like they're at least talking because Moash uses the same kind of derogatory name for Kaladin that Gaz always does. Yeah. So either they're talking or Moash is kind of kind of emulating Gaz and his treatment of Kaladin. It was also interesting that he dropped a bunch of spheres when they were supposed to be out there kind of salvaging and scrounging around for them. But it hadn't really been mentioned at that point that he had collected them. And we know that Gaz in particular is very, very hard up for money. We don't know really why. You know, and I wonder, is Moash bringing them to Gaz and sort of you know, I don't think he could get away with that. It's said that unless Gaz is the one doing the body search. Oh, that's true, but they're yeah they're searched on the way down and on the way up. Yeah. So very thoroughly, I I thought it an important character note for Syl in this chapter when she is with Kaladin in the apothecary. First of all, she kind of alerts him to the fact that the apothecary is lying, even though Kaladin had kind of figured that out. Mm -hmm. But as he's leaving, he's contemplating running away. You know, he's got a sapphire mark here, which is more than he was expecting to make. It's, it's more than enough for him to buy his way far enough away from the camps that he could conceivably lay low and live kind of a miserable existence, but be free for the rest of his life. And when Syl kind of questions him, he's up front with her and he says, I'm thinking about running away. It's what I'm thinking about. And up until this point, we've seen Syl really have this kind of knee jerk reaction anytime that Kaladin is considering doing something less than honorable. Yeah. And she doesn't react that way in this situation. She reacts with empathy. So it's just interesting. Almost every time we see her, she's grown more human like in her yeah. reactions. Yeah. The other thing, and I'm, I noticed about Kaladin in this whole process at the very end is so two significant things happen towards the end of this chapter. One is the whole thing with this, the spear that everyone saw this very obvious display of badassery. And then we also have him have a campfire and a stew and bring everyone in and sing songs and hang out. And I get the distinct impression that it was, it's going to be the latter, not the former, that allows him to win this crew over. And I, I think really, that's interesting. I really like that you said that because that is a very, yeah, that's a really good point. I think his display with the spear probably is good, would get some attention and maybe cause 
the bridge crew to respect him in a new way. But I like that contrast um, versus the the show of strength, the show of physical strength yeah. versus the humility of using most of the funds that, well, they didn't really realize he had, but providing a meal for someone. Well, yeah, and also contrast between this slightly meta this metaphysically inspired excellence and and this highly mundane thing but what is more effective for his goals i like that nice i also i really love the developing relationship between rock and teft in this chapter they're they're full on you know joking about how bad the other one smells and that kind of thing and it's just neat to see that develop from the beginning when they wouldn't even give their names to Kaladin or each other and then they didn't want to talk they didn't want to be vulnerable enough to have any kind of friendship and now we just see that kind of growing and that's kind of cool we also learn kind of as a note that the Pershendi grow their armor because they yeah. find some Parshendi corpses and we realize they realize that they go to Kaladin go, says well let's go harvest the armor and they're like uh no we can't because apparently they just have a carapace they that they have grown and they're very confused because the Parshmen obviously that don't do that yeah so it just it adds to the strangeness and it also highlights that no they don't often find Parshendi corpses yeah. down there. So that's pretty much all I think that I have for the book club coverage. Agreed. Are you ready to play a game? Yeah, absolutely. So on our Facebook group page, which is a great way to interact with us if you haven't joined us yet, can you read them the link to that? Yeah, the Facebook group page is at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the DND group. So it's different from we have a kind of a public Facebook group page and one that is uh, private that you have to send an invite request to. So if you send that invite request, we will let you in the club right away. That's right. It's a secret club. It's a secret club. You had to request to join and then we approve it. But on this page, uh, listeners and, and members can originate posts and it's it's really fun. On this page, one of our listeners, Theo Graham Brown, posted a map of the United States and it's probably the best map of the United States I've ever seen. And it has all of the most lewd sounding city names in each state of the United States. And then Hmm. another listener, Felicity, posted one of Australia, which is where Theo lives. So it was kind of funny. Well, they they both live there. Oh, they both live there. Did not know that. And by the way, their names are better. Uh, Well, we're going to find out because (laughs) right now. So there was some speculation as to whether Chad would be able to read the these city names without laughing. Chad thinks. That he can. I tell you I can. He is telling me that he can. I think that he's going to crack like a polyp full of lavis grain. (laughs) So we decided to have a little try not to laugh competition. Australia versus the U.S. I'm representing the Aussies. The Duke versus the Duchess. So we have here, Chad has picked out what he thinks are the 10 funniest 
sounding Australian city names on pieces of paper that I have to take one by one and read. That's right. And Chad here has the 10 most funny sounding United States city names that he is going to read. We're going to go back and forth. And whoever laughs the most loses. Okay. Are you ready? I, I am ready. So listeners at home, we have sound effects because we're official. So Chad and I are going to read these names. If Chad starts to laugh, I will make a noise like this. If Liz starts to laugh, I will make a noise like this. <laughs> All right. I am going to... It doesn't to... count right now. It doesn't count that I'm laughing. No, no, no. We have not begun the game. <laughs> okay. All right. Now okay. we are officially beginning. We're officially beginning. I am going to go first. All right. Go. PP Township. Titterstone. Oh, I can laugh oh, that, at you. Oh, no, you can't. Oh, I'm not allowed to laugh the no entire laughing. time? No laughing. All right. It's one to one. All right, that's how you're going to play it. You are so going to lose at this game. Mm-mm, nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You got me. <laughs> Hump two lips. <laughs> that only counts as one because I laughed at it the does. name. Okay. And you laughed too, by the way. I did. <laughs> Booty Island. I'll pick up the pace here. All right. No laughing there. Mm. Like a rock you are. Mm-hmm. Like a rock. Like Dick Shooter. <laughs> Diddy cup soap. <laughs> what? Titty cup soak gotcha? <laughs> Something about titty cup soak. Did you just look at no, it? No, I, I didn't. Okay. I forgot it was not my turn. Floyd's knobs. Big Bush Chuckling Creek. Nothing funny about. Wanker's Corner. P1. <laughs> Dry Prong. Sudden Jerk. Splunge. <laughs> Stuttering Dick's Creek. <laughs> Come on, you gotta keep it going. Brohard. Ding dong rainforest. Sugar tit. I'm watching you, Duchess. <laughs> Damn it. Short pump. <laughs> I have actually spent several nights in short pump. Have you really? Yes, I nice. have. So- a nice little town. <laughs> well played, Duke. Well, well played. played. So who won? I don't know. I couldn't count. Oh, I was laughing too hard. Because you were too busy laughing. That's why. <laughs> I, th- I think listeners will have to tally it up for us and tell us who won. I think when it comes to the Duchess. Really? Cause, and I think when it comes to the Duke, 
You got pwned. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Back to the important stuff. Back to the book. Why don't you lay your predictions on us? Actually, first, I got a, I got a couple things I want to do first, because we, we close up with predictions. So Oh, right, right, right. So first, I want to thank Najen, who gave us a review on Stitcher, a five-star review. Nice. And it says, holy Taylu, I love the Duke and Duchess podcast. Liz and Chad take an organized and often hilarious approach to the literary deep dives. Their discussions are engaging and thought-provoking, and they complement each other wonderfully. I enjoy their tangents, the spot-on or wildly off predictions, and their various references to geek pop culture. These are my people. That gives me goosebumps. We Thank you. love it. Also, on Twitter, we had another one, and this is from, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, MITC7. It's M-I-T-C-C-E-7. And it's entitled marriage goals so truly love this podcast i'm a big pat rothfuss fan and so was trying to find a companion for the books i'm so grateful i found this podcast they've inspired me now to read the way of kings chad and liz have a great banter really and it really makes this podcast fun and always makes me smile i adore their giggles especially when liz lets herself get a little crude Liz gets so proud when Chad discovers something important in the books, and it's adorable to listen to. I also wanted to mention briefly, a couple podcasts ago, people asked about different nerdy podcasts, and I didn't bring up the GuitarCast podcast because I thought of it as being more of a music-specific one. But within the music, if you are a music fan or a musician, I think it's something you want to listen to. I especially loved episode 27 where they have a discussion about how the music of the Grateful Dead influenced Game of Thrones. And having just Mm. finished reading Armageddon Rag by George R.R. Martin, I think that's 100% true. Very interesting. I like one of those things. No offense, Jerry, but thank you very much for those reviews. They always warm our cockles. We really appreciate that. Absolutely. All right, so now to predictions. All right, so my first prediction is during the recreants, I hope I, might, I, hope I have my terms correct here, the ardents or the priests, whoever they were, who were claiming to have received visions. That's the hierocracy. The, the hierocracy, thank you were indeed receiving real visions, but the history was rewritten. Hmm. Good prediction. Uh, Moash and Gaz are working together, which I've already said. The Parshendi have to harvest gem hearts in order to survive, but they do it in a way that's reverential. Uh, But the Alethi are seen as barbarians who slaughter needlessly. Next one. I think I was wrong last time. I don't think it's Dalinar that's going to get killed. I think it's Elikar that's going to get killed. All right. Stop looking at me with your eyeballs. <laughs> I'm not giving anything away. I predict that Sidious will try to unseat Dalinar in favor of Adolin, but I don't think he wants to destroy Dalinar or Elikar. But I do think he wants to be the king. 
I think it's important to note that the current king does not have an heir. Yes. And my last prediction is that the new bright lord in Kaladin's town, Mudball or whatever it is, I forget the name of it, Hearthstone. Hearthstone. There you go. Is going to take the spheres from Kaladin's family. All right. So those, those are my predictions. I have said them, let them be true. I like it. You're uh, smart. Thank you. I appreciate that. You can find us on the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com, also on Twitter at the DND Podcast, on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess, and also on the Facebook group page, backslash groups, backslash the DND group, or just search for the Duke and Duchess Podcast group. You can find us on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess Podcast as well. We love the reviews. The reviews are awesome and they do help us. What we also love is word of mouth and just telling a friend. But what we love most of all is really just that you guys hang out with us and interact with us. We love talking with you guys on Twitter, on Facebook, all of that stuff. It makes us it makes us want to keep doing the podcast. It really does. All right, good night everybody. Good night. Mm-hmm.